When I found out I was gonna be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. On the program today, former Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. I am so excited to talk to her. I've been wanting to talk to her for forever, it seems. She's here for the full episode, and there is so much to cover. We're going to get to her thoughts on the nationwide teacher shortage and the teachers union boss, Randy Weingarten, blaming Republicans for this. Republicans. We'll also tackle Joe Biden recently scrapping DeVos's Title IX regulations. These are the ones that, among other things, restore due process for men who get accused on college campuses of sexual harassment or assault. Well, the Biden administration is about to throw those out. Uh, And not only that, but they're saying that schools have to now respect students' gender identity and they they could impose penalties on students who don't use the declared pronouns of choice by their classmates. We're becoming Canada. This is what got Jordan Peterson in trouble in Canada. They made it a law. This is the next best thing. Uh, Betsy herself has also been in the news lately. The January 6th committee reportedly wants to hear from her. So will she cooperate? Uh, So we'll get to all of that. And we are also going to get into why in her new book, she calls Elizabeth Warren one of the coldest people she's ever met. Her book is titled Hostages No More, the fight for education freedom and the future of the American child. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Betsy, so great to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Megan. It's great to be here with you. Oh my gosh, there's so much I want to go over with you. What's happening to education under this administration has been downright alarming. And every other week, I'm like, we got to get Betsy DeVos on. I want to talk to her about this and I want to talk to her about that. So, so much to go over. But if you don't mind, let's just start with news of the day because the Liz Cheney defeat is making all sorts of news. And uh, you were in Republican politics for a long time before you became education secretary. So you know something about, you know, wins and losses and what they mean. The left wing press is calling her a martyr. They're talking about a presidential run for Liz Cheney. She went down in flames by 30 points to her Trump back opponent for this congressional seat. And I really wonder, first of all, what your reaction is to her loss, but also why you think she lost? Well, uh, it's a very good question. Um, I think that uh, originally 
um, her work to really look into January 6th and all of the happenings that day um, was a, a very valid pursuit, but I feel like she um, continued to make it more and more about herself. And then, um, you know, the the race in, in Wyoming, her home state, uh, it became clearer and clearer that um, it, the national uh, everything that was going on nationally was going to sort of supersede everything going on there. And I just, uh, I, I feel sorry for her personally, but um, I, you know, this is, this is, I think an instructive uh, time for all Republicans. You know, I, I, for one have been involved many years and I've always been one looking through the windshield to the next election. Republicans need to be focused on the policies that Joe Biden and his administration have been laying on this country. And uh, the people in, in America are suffering under their policies. We need to be attacking those policies and uh and and framing up debates and issues around policies that are going to matter to uh, families at the kitchen tables across America. We need to be looking ahead, uh, not in the rearview mirror. And I think it's a, it, again another an instructive moment for Republicans uh, across the country. There was a CNN poll not long ago uh released late July that found 36, just 36 percent of Republicans believe January 6th was a crisis or a major problem. That's down seven points since February, since, you know, we've had eight hearings on this in prime time, some of them and so on. So this is not resonating with Republican voters. And Liz Cheney is the face of it. Um, do you think, you know, because you say she made it about her, do you think she forgot what actually is important? To voters in Wyoming, things like inflation uh, and gas prices and so on, as opposed to just, you know, a never ending obsession with what, of course, was a bad, bad day. But, you know, was it the worst day? Was it the day that deserves all this critical coverage forevermore, primetime hearings and so on? I'm getting the feeling that Wyoming voters didn't think so. Well, I think Wyoming voters didn't think so. And I think voters in states all over the country are focused on the issues that they're facing every day. As you said, higher prices for all of their groceries, higher gas prices, um, higher prices for everything across the board. And then not to mention all of the other policies that are impacting families, um, such as the continued uh, politicization of everything to do with schools. Um, you know, the last two years have really laid bare all of these issues and parents have had a front row seat. And those are some of the things that, you know, I talk about in the book, but um, they're, they're more real to parents today than they ever were before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the things that are on the minds of voters. We're seeing it in primary races all over the country. So that's, this is exactly what I want to talk about. This is what I think her problem was. Okay, she she didn't like January 6th. I mean, there are very few people who liked January 6th. Okay. And and it, it definitely deserves some scrutiny. We have to figure out exactly who did it and why and how how cops got hurt and so on. However, the view on Trump, especially with some distance and you know, a couple of years under Joe Biden, I think is shifting pretty rapidly to his policy successes, especially now that we don't have his tweets every day and so on. Right. It's like he's back in the news because of the raid this week. But I do think people are starting to see the difference in policy between his administration, which you were a part of, and the Biden administration, which we're living under right now. And I think there's like we get it. January 6th. It's not getting it's getting outsized coverage versus the BLM riots and all everything else that we went through during those years. But we're focused on 
really catastrophic things right now from the numbers, the economic numbers to, yes, absolutely what's happening to our children on a daily basis under this administration in the schools and around just general children issues, health care and so on. So it, it gets to the point where you're like, do you understand what we care about? Get over your obsession with this one terrible day. Move on to the things that will affect me and my children. Well, we've seen in uh, primary contests all across the country, the things that are on voters' minds are those issues that are impacting them daily. And the one that I've been closest to, education, is uh, top among them, uh, only second to inflation and all the impacts of inflation. And these are policies that uh, Joe Biden and his administration and all of his uh, you know, colleagues in Congress have been um, laying heavily on Americans that are unhappy about what they're doing. And we have got to stay focused on beating Democrats and winning for Republican policies and Republican um, issues this fall. I definitely I mean, we're going to talk all about that. But before we do, let me spend one more minute on news of the day, because um, there's the Trump raid. Uh, the raid of Mar-a-Lago or search, whatever you want to call it, pursuant to a warrant. But it looked like a like a raid with 30 FBI agents going in there. Now, Trump has come out and said to it was actually Fox News Digital. Um, he said that he reached out to the DOJ about working together, saying, quote, whatever we can do to help, because the temperature has to be brought down in this country. If it isn't, terrible things are going to happen. The people of this country are not going to stand for another scam. What do you make of that? And what do you make of the raid? Well, first of all, it was unprecedented. And um, I think it just is, I mean, the FBI has a lot of explaining to do, as does the DOJ. I mean, this is the same FBI that has gone out to investigate parents for speaking up at school board meetings on behalf of their kids. I mean, the trust level there has been has taken a major hit on multiple different occasions and for multiple reasons. And so there is, uh, you know, this is an issue that we have got to grapple with and uh, and that the DOJ and FBI have got to address forthrightly with the American people. We we have got to be able to trust um, the highest uh, you know, legal body in our country. And yet some of the moves they've made in the last year and a half have have left us uh, you know, dumbstruck over what's been happening, uh, not the least of which is parents who have ma- been made to feel or called, literally called domestic terrorists for simply caring about and wanting answers about their children's educations. Do you think Merrick Garland has gone full partisan? Well, it certainly appears that he has. It feels that way. And um, and again, I think these are really serious issues that uh, everybody's got to take a step back and and look objectively at what's been going on and really uh, address the concerns that Americans validly have about uh, that entity and about the FBI. Betsy, what's going to happen if these guys put Donald Trump in handcuffs and actually indict the former president of the United States on some presidential records act charge related? It's not even a criminal statute, but they're kind of using the criminal law to get after him for allegedly keeping classified and other documents down at Mar-a-Lago. What what's going to happen if they do that to him? Well, I I, I don't want to go to a hypothetical like that. But uh, again, I think the uh, 
the actions by the DOJ and the FBI on this and other matters have really um, put uh, a lot of Americans on edge. And, and rightfully so, there are answers that have not been forthcoming. And, and there are actions that have just uh, made uh, normal Americans be made to feel like they are somehow out of step. And again, I, I think of those parents for whom investigation, you know, investigators were sent in by the FBI um, when when we have other matters of serious domestic terrorism and other terrorism incidents or threats thereof that go un, uh, unresponded to and or unaddressed. So mm -hmm. again, the, the the DOJ and FBI really do have a lot of explaining to do and um, and a long way to go to regain their credibility. Yeah, they won't in investigate the people protesting outside of conservative Supreme Court justices homes, including, you know, the one guy who showed up to assassinate Justice Kavanaugh. But they have plenty of time to go raid Mar-a-Lago and spend time on documents. Um, it's infuriating for a lot of people who who even even Trump critics. It's just infuriating to watch how the, the, these wheels of justice are applied to run over certain people, especially if they have an R after their name. On the subject of Jan 6th, um, there are reports that you're cooperating with the committee and may testify. Is that true? Well, uh, I've not had any contact with the committee. And uh, really what I have to say about it is uh, recorded in my book. Um, I, I, you know, the, the day of January 6th was an awful day on many accounts by, you know, from for many different reasons. And um, I ultimately felt the need to step away from my position um, as a result of a lack of action taken on the part uh, of the president to put an end to it or to call for an end to it. And um, as I you know, have reflected upon in my book, um, it was a difficult day for all of us. But leaders have to step into moments like that and um, make sure that we are doing everything we can to uh, you know, right the ship to stabilize things. And uh, that was uh, that was very much what I felt uh, my part to play in that particular moment was. So just to be clear, CNN is reporting that you have been in talks with the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Are you denying that? I have not been in contact and not, nor has any of my team been in contact with CNN or anyone. Uh, so once again, not with CNN, can, but you you yeah, in contact no, with House. No, that, that, that was inaccurate. That is inaccurate. Okay. OK. Oh, you're telling me CNN got the facts wrong about a member of the Trump administration? Surprise. Surprise. Yes. <laughs> um, OK. So what about that? Can Let's spend a minute on the fact that you resigned early. I mean, you're only going to be there for another 12 days or so, but. You, you, Elaine Chow, uh, and there was one other person, I can't remember who, who it is off the top of my head, but you resigned after January 6th, on January 7th. Um, and I understand why the, the fever was high and it was just the whole thing was overwhelming emotionally for a lot of people. But do you have any regrets about that now with some distance you know, between the event and today? Uh, I, I do not. Um, I, I really felt um, that it was the right thing to do at the moment. Uh, first of all, all the work that I could have accomplished in that job, in that office, serving the American people had been accomplished at that point. And um, there was nothing more that we could really do on behalf of students. 
And um, I, I just felt very, I, I put myself in the uh, position of a young child watching what was going on uh, on TV that day. And it, it was it was hard to see. It was difficult to to watch and to and 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 you know almost impossible to understand in many ways. So I, I just felt that um, it was a a point at which I could no longer continue to remain in the role I had and serve in the way that I was. And I I, I you know did what I thought was the right thing at the moment. And no, I don't have uh, regrets looking in in uh, in hindsight on it. Um, I, I think you know ex as expressed in my letter of resignation, um, this was a a, a moment where uh, I felt it was important to. Um, side with the longevity of our constitution and support um, what had to happen that day uh, from a procedure standpoint. And um, I was I was especially um, I was especially concerned about and, um, uh, and and disappointed and and in many ways felt hurt for um, how uh, Mike Pence was sort of thrown under the what was thrown under the bus that day. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was that was a, a particularly uh, poignant moment as well. It's pretty crazy how he's been demonized by some in the hardcore MAGA crowd, right? It's like, what was Mike Pence's sin again? I can see why you don't like him if you're on the left. But the, really, if you're on the right, you'd be hard pressed to find a guy more loyal to Donald Trump than Mike Pence, that just the one thing he would not do was contest the certification of the vote, which was not his role. He was not allowed to do that, no matter what Trump had been adv advised or was telling his people. So it's, no, it's truly no. tough to like, why, why does this hardcore group within the MAGA most, you know, avid MAGA fans hate Mike Pence? Yeah, I, I think it's a very good question. I mean, he was unfailingly uh, faithful to and loyal to uh, President Trump for the whole uh, time in the administration. He was a, a huge asset to the administration and um, and really was a, a great spokesperson for the president's policies, as were many others in the cabinet and uh, in the administration. Um, so again, I I, uh, I, I just uh, I, I don't have any regrets in hindsight um, about having uh, you know resigned on that day after the the January six happenings. Um, but I, I just hope that as a party, a whole party, that we can turn around and move forward and look ahead instead of uh, continually looking in the rearview mirror and second guessing everything. We yeah. have uh, we have real foes to defeat in uh, the policies and people that are represented in the opposite party. And we have uh, a real harms to point to uh, being uh, being levied on Americans across the country in terms of the policies that this admi this administration has put forward. And so that's where our focus really needs to be moving ahead and moving our party forward to win elections and reclaim, uh, you know, majorities so that we can put policies back in place that are going to actually help and improve Americans' lives. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, in your field in particular, it's amazing how much the policies have differed administration to administration. Obama, Trump, now Biden. And the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth to the point where I'm sure a lot of these schools are like, oh, my God, you know, like don't get too comfortable with any of these guidelines because they're going to switch in four years. 
Um, can I ask you, though, because you do write about this in your book about your you considered possibly trying to invoke the 25th Amendment after January 6th. Um, and it sounds like although, you know, you didn't want to reveal substance of conversations with people like Mike Pence. It sounds to me like he stopped it, like Mike Pence was the one who he was loyal to Trump and said, that's not going to happen. Well, I yes, I, I, I don't want to um, talk about my conversations with him or others. But again, I think in moments of crisis, leaders need to lean in and step forward and, and look at what the options are to ensure that uh, the ship is steadied and things are stabilized. And um, and so my conversations were with uh, others to ensure that we were doing everything we could in our roles to do just that. Did you think? President Trump was unsteady? Uh, you know, I thought over the last weeks after the election, um, the times that I had to interact with him, I felt, first of all, I felt very sorry for him in that he was very isolated in the White House. Um, and, and, you know, it was a different time during uh, a lot of the COVID protocols where, um, you know, you could do things and then not do things again. Anyway, the isolation, I think, was was not helpful. And he listened to fewer and fewer people um, around him. And I think that was that was tough. That was tough to see. It was tough to watch. And um, and, and so I, you know, I had concerns about that continued uh, isolation and and taking advice and counsel from fewer and fewer people. You know, it's like you get feedback. And I realize when you're president, when you're the actual candidate, you get it from more than the media. But on election night and thereafter, the media tends to be the main vehicle through which we get election results. And we find out, you know, what happened in places like Arizona, Michigan, what have you. And I just wonder, you know, you think about Trump alone in the White House and isolated and four years of vicious attacks and impeachments and Russiagate, and all of it. And then he's kind of being asked to just trust what these people are saying about him while the pylon reaches epic levels. Right. I mean, yes, in part because of what he was saying uh, about the election and so on. But there the trust was so fractured, there was no trusting it. And I don't think he trusted a lot of these state officials either who were giving him this feedback, Republican or Democrat, because even within the Republican Party he had never Trumpers. You know, I, it just reminds me of almost a soldier who doesn't really know who his constituency is and doesn't really trust a lot of people around him and really for good reason. Yeah, you know, I guess the, the reference to a soldier in the fog of war, you know, we were in unprecedented times trying to navigate through COVID and everything surrounding that. And and I do think um, with uh, the continued uh scrutiny and pylons on at, at every turn and every front, um, it, it was difficult. I mean, the, the entire time of uh, it, it, tr President Trump's administration, all of us had to continually battle um, what seemed to be incessant attacks on uh, uh, everything that we did. And, um, you know, there was there was less and less focus on the merits of the policies that were being presented and promoted and more and more on personality and who said what about whom. And uh, and so the erosion of trust was uh, was across the board. And that's you know, that's understandable. And we are in that same kind of an environment today. 
And so it's even more important for leaders. And I would, you know, encourage all leaders within our party to really step up and um, and and lead constituents around uh, platforms that people will be um, confident of and uh, and and demonstrate trustworthiness by uh, being the, your same self in pro- public and in private. And um, you know the the issue of trust is one that goes uh, very wide and deep. Um, in our country, I'm afraid. And, and, and I have, you know, I continue to have real concerns about where we go from here if we do not come back together and talk honestly about um, policies that are going to make a difference for families, but from yeah. a platform of being able to trust and, and have, uh, have valid uh, discussion and debate of ideas. And, you know, this is one of the things that I think about when we talk uh, about the lack of uh, free speech on campuses. Um, this ability to discuss and debate ideas openly and without fear of retribution, um, but to be able to openly debate and and share ideas and thoughts and helping equip students to be able to do that in a way that is going to be constructive for them. Uh, these are these are really um, important uh, foundations that I think way too many students are not being afforded yeah. they aren't being challenged by they're not getting it in k through 12 they're not getting it in college education right. now even in exactly. law schools now they're trying to shut down debate and give people safe spaces if they hear arguments that upset them <laughs> welcome to being a lawyer um yeah, so yeah it's not right. just an education problem though and then it follows you out when you get into the business world and if you go into government and you know we're seeing it this problem is becoming truly ubiquitous one word about the democrats um i will never forget the moment where president trump signed uh prior to his State of the Union that year, the Anti-Sex Trafficking Act. And you had people like AOC sitting cross-armed, refusing to clap when he mentioned it. It's like, really? You can't spare a moment of applause for the Anti-Sex Trafficking Act? That's too far a bridge for you to cross to just say, hey, I realize it's Trump and I hate him, but I, I support. That's just how hardcore partisan things have gotten and, yeah. and just crazy. It's annoying. Yeah, now I was I was actually encouraged when many Republicans stood up and, and applauded uh, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, and I thought that was a that was a good moment. That was a a little glimmer of hope. But no, we have got to we have got to come around to um, being able to applaud good ideas, no matter where they originate from, yeah. and to being up being able to debate those ideas. So, do we think? To put a pin on it, uh, that what what would you think about Donald Trump being arrested? Do you think he should be prosecuted for January sixth, which is what they're really trying to do? Uh, you know, I don't have any knowledge of what is going on uh, in that investigation or what the uh, you know what the foundational allegations are, and so I I would not uh, speculate what next steps might be. What I would go back to is that the erosion of trust in the FBI and the DOJ are very serious matters. And whatever their next steps or moves are, they had better be thinking very carefully about what uh, what they're going to do and what impact that's going to have uh, across the country. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think this is a, a very, um, very difficult moment. And, um, 
people have uh, cons- valid concerns about uh, this, you know, highest legal body in our in our nation, um, not doing things uh, on behalf of all people, but having a politicized agenda. And so, you know, let's uh, let's make sure let's urge them to be very circumspect about what whatever their next steps might be. Hmm. I, I'm I'm I do think it's kind of curious that are you open minded to a criminal prosecution of Trump? I mean. Even as a, in my position, I can say that it's never been done before. You're going to try to get him for a bad legal theory on Jan 6th, or you're going to get him for having documents he was cooperating over on the on the Mar-a-Lago front. Like it'll tear this country apart. It will tear us apart. It is there is prosecutorial discretion, even if he has committed a document crime. I guarantee you bad legal theory does not make a crime on the Jan 6th lane. I'm surprised that you won't go that far. No, I mean, I can't I cannot imagine a scenario under which there's uh, grounds for that to happen. Um, But I have been shocked and surprised by the moves that the (laughs) DOJ and the FBI have made uh, in these most recent days. And frankly, in the months uh, before this, uh, again, going back to when parents. I know, but I was asking, should they should they not? Will they? I mean, will they? Yeah, I think they will. But should they? Uh, that's the question. Uh, I, I don't I mean, I'm certainly not aware of anything that would uh, would warrant that. And 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 I would be shocked if there is ver- if grounds to do it. Yeah. You seem like you're close to Mike Pence. It seems like he's going to run. He's certainly, you know, intimating that. So we re- very well could have a primary with Pence and Trump running against one another. Would you who would you support? Well, uh, I'm focused right now on the elections this fall, and I think that's where all Republicans should be focused. We need to win races and win back majorities in both chambers and uh, at state houses and in uh, governor's mansions across the country. Um, And I think that uh, 24 will be very much informed by who is supportive of what and how and how how we are actually working uh, in tandem to move the party and the ideas of the party forward. Um, and, and then I think after uh, this, this November, we're going to have lots of time to talk about what next. But um, uh, there's there's certainly no end of speculation about what the matchups might be. Mm. So you could you could vote for Donald Trump. I, I'm not going to speculate. I, I don't do hypotheticals. I really don't. I never have. Well, no, I, I understand. I'm, I'm just wondering because because you resigned, you know, does that make it impossible that you would support him if he were to run for another term? Well, I, I don't I'm not at all convinced that he is going to run for another term. And I, I may be a, a minority of, of uh, Repo- among among rem- a minority of Republicans that feel that way. But again, I think uh, we need to stay focused on this fall's elections and um, and let's see what happens then. And and then what is you know, what unfolds beyond that? Uh, We have a a lot of issues to deal with um, as a party. But more importantly, and more broadly, this country has a lot of issues to deal with because we have uh, we have a formidable opponent and opponents in the Democrats that are continuing to wreak havoc on our country and on uh, families across the country. And we have got to turn the tide and and, uh, you know, reverse course on policies that are harming families policies. and that are precluding kids from getting a, a high quality education and preparing for the future. 
Well, you're not wrong. I mean, what we see happen in these midterm elections definitely will affect who's going to be the chosen Republican nominee and potentially who's going to be the Democratic nominee if Joe Biden doesn't run or even if he just gets primary in that, you know, I was thinking about it today because the latest polling for a lot of the Trump backed Republican candidates in several of these states, even J.D. Vance in Ohio, who was and I think still is, you know, in general favored to win this race, um, is behind by five points. Um, Carrie Lake is showing behind in her general election uh, battle, though she's got tons of GOP enthusiasm behind her. So I'm I'm be fascinated to see how that one comes out. Um, Pennsylvania, you got Mehmet Oz, who's struggling against this guy who's basically been off the campaign trail dealing with the after effects of a health scare. And I so it like all these guys lose and the Republicans don't take back the Senate because they went too Trumpy in the nomination of their candidates that that could affect presidential politics. We'll have to see, as you point out. OK, let's turn the page from the politics discussion to the education discussion. And let me squeeze in a quick break before we do that, because there's tons, tons to get through. And Betsy DeVos is somebody who actually did some good when she was in this office. So what does she think about what's happening in it now? Betsy, this just in uh, The New York Times putting out an article about the CDC. I think you'll find this interesting since what they did directly affected what you did and what what people under your auspices had to do during the pandemic. Uh, Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, uh, delivered a sweeping rebuke today of her agency's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, saying it had failed to respond quickly enough and needed to be overhauled. She outlined in broad terms a plan to reorganize the agency's structure to prioritize public health needs and efforts to curb continuing outbreaks and to put less emphasis on publication of scientific papers about rare diseases. This grew out of an external review she had ordered in April after months of scathing criticism of the CDC's response. Its public messages on masking, points out the Times, and other mitigation measures were sometimes so confusing or abruptly modified that they seem more like internal drafts than carefully considered proclamations. Leaders of the agency's COVID team rotated out over a few months, leaving other senior federal health officials unsure about who was in charge. Well, you and the audience and I know that one of the people in the room making decisions, quote, in charge, was Randy Weingarten and the teachers unions, which had their fingerprints all over the guidance that was being handed down to American schools even though they didn't have the children's best interests at heart, they cared only about themselves. And I don't think this is going to change any of that. The CDC's one liner about how it could have done better isn't going to change anything, including the American public's faith in it. What do you think? No, you're absolutely right, Megan. And uh, the the notion that uh, the teachers unions with Randy Weingarten leading the pack uh, were editing the proposed CDC guidance over months and uh, had a direct pipeline to the CDC to uh, shape and form what came out of there that impacted millions of kids' lives and uh, kept schools shut down months longer than they should have been. Uh, parents aren't going to forget. Grandparents aren't going to forget. And importantly, kids who have suffered aren't going to ult- ultimately forget 
this, you know, the the implications of how this was navigated um, aren't going to be fully known for years. Uh, the kids who are shut out for up to two years from their school in person um, are, are forever impacted. And all kids, no matter how well their school responded or their uh, system responded, are impacted negatively in some way. We know that uh, the mental health issues, the um, social and emotional well-being of kids um, has been negatively impacted regardless. And so uh, this seems uh, like very little, very late, and um, it is, uh, I think, trying to put uh, a little bit of lipstick on a pig. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a basic, a basic question? Why? Why does Randy Weingarten care only about her union and I guess some of the teachers in it and not at all, apparently, for the children who they're teaching? Well, I mean, let's be honest, this is about power and it's about resources and it's about ability to impact uh, you know, decisions regarding power and resources. And the teachers unions, I, I prefer to call them the school unions because I don't think they represent teachers, certainly not good teachers who have a focus on and heart right. for kids. They right. are focused totally on adult issues and protecting a system that for years, for decades now, has not been serving a lot of kids, a high percentage of kids in this country has not been serving them well. They have resisted change at every step. They have uh, you know, tried to strong arm and muscle um, elected officials to fall into line with their agenda, which basically protects their livelihoods and their power and their ability to continue to expand their livelihoods and their their power. I mean, it's a it's a it's a vicious circle. And um, and, and, you know, that was revealed the last couple of years. They had they have definitely overplayed their hand at every step. And uh, and now they're trying to you know wind it back in some way and suggest that it's the parents and it's that you know it's it's uh, the other party that was actually politicizing all of this. No, it was not. It was the teachers' unions at, at the core of all of uh, you know what happened to kids these last two years. And parents had a front row seat and they know it. I'm going to play that soundbite in a second, but can you just tell us because this is in the book about your experience with Randy Weingarten and touring the schools of choice, yours and hers? Yeah, so on my first day in office, I called both Randy and Lily Eccleson Garcia, who was head of the NEA then. Uh, Lily refused to even speak with me or meet with me ever. Wow. And uh, I never did have a conversation with her, although I reached out and said, I know we have some things we can find and work on together in common on behalf of students. Unbelievable. Uh, That's the largest did. teachers union in the country, just refusing right. to meet with the secretary of education. Okay. Right. Yes. Um, Randy did take my call and uh, we had a, a pleasant conversation. We both agreed that um, she would visit a school of my choosing with me and I would visit a school of her cho choosing with her. Uh, we scheduled her school visit first and um, it, it turned out to be a very nice visit to a rural school district in Ohio, Van Wert. And uh, and we had, you know, we had a pleasant visit, a pleasant day. And um, it was, you know, it was great to see kids, uh, you know, working, learning, great, meet great teachers. Um, I think she took me to that district because it was a heavily Republican district. 
um, a, you know, a, a stereotypical, you know, rural school, one high school in a, um, you know, a, a, a large geographic area and um, was pretty uh, emblematic of what some rural Republican legislature legislators have maintained that, you know, there really aren't choice other choices for kids in rural districts. Um, but I think, uh, you know, what we saw there was that actually there were 20 or 25 percent of the kids in that area whose parents were choosing something different for them because that particular assigned school didn't work. Um, but all that to say the visit was was fine. It was great. Um, but she refused then to actually schedule a visit to a school of my choosing. And so that never did happen. Um, unfortunately, she broke her word. Would have been it would have been I, I would have made sure that you know she had a good experience and that and then hopefully would have learned something again uh focusing on students brings you to a lot of different kinds of solutions than focusing on oh. uh, a system and on adult issues she's not in the market for solutions right she's in the market for politics and she didn't want a photo op with you on your terms, you know, on your turf of your school of choosing. And it, frankly, it reminds me of the Elizabeth Warren story from your book. The, the book is full of interesting anecdotes about people whose names our audience will be very familiar with. And Elizabeth Warren, during your confirmation hearing, this is unbelievable. So nasty. You have a, a tough back and forth during the the confirmation hearing. She's obviously not a fan, but like the classy lady you are, you go over to her at the end and offer your hand. Actually, we have videotape of this. Um, is it a soundbite, Deb, or is it a videotape? Uh, it's a, it's a, okay, yeah, it's rolling. Okay. You go over, you try to shake her hand. She doesn't shake your hand. <laughs> I mean, like, what, what do you make of that? What, why, why wouldn't she? I don't know. I mean, I can't get into her head and I, I don't want to, frankly, but it was, uh, it, it was just another indication to me of uh, an unwillingness to really focus on what we were there for, which is for what is best for students and their futures. How are we going to prepare our kids to take their place in leadership in the next, in, in the coming generations, if, uh, if we cannot work together to ensure that they have a great quality K-12 education experience. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren was um, was very single focused in her um, uh, ability to uh, zero in on issues that were important to her. And, and she has, I think, to a large extent, she has overtaken uh, President Biden and his administration in uh, getting her way with what's happening at the Department of Education today. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we see this back and forth on what they're going to do with student loans and student debt and loan forgiveness. And, um, it, you know, it is Elizabeth Warren's mission to forgive all student debt, essentially. And, and so, you know, that is uh, antithetical now to what we've heard President Biden say on more than one occasion, that you can't just go and forgive student debt. Um, so, you know, I think, she has continued to wield her way, and um, and this is ultimately to the detriment of uh, students and families and taxpayers across the country. You, you point out in the book that it's it's absurd to think that the Senate actually confirms nominees for the position you held, um, at least when it's a Democratic administration. That in fact, it's the teachers' unions who will 
approve right. or disapprove of someone nominated to your position. That, that's how much control yeah. they have. And you're exactly. right to make the distinction between the teachers and the unions. I know a lot of great teachers who don't want to join the union, who say the union doesn't speak for them, who don't share the union's politics, but it's a near impossibility to, to really distance yourself from them. Um, the, uh, on well, Randy Weingarten. About, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and think about how many teachers have left the profession out of frustration because okay. of the heavy handedness of the union. Oh, and, yeah, perfect. Um, hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought, because I'll get you that to say that on the opposite side of the Randy Weingarten uh, reasoning for the teacher shortage. According to uh, the unions, we're short 300,000 teachers going into this year. That's the unions. Uh, the Wall Street Journal puts it as at tens of thousands, which is ambiguous. But we definitely have a teacher shortage. I mean, that is true. Um, and how bad it is. It's it's bad. We just don't know quite how bad. So here's Randy Weingarten speaking on why, why we have a teacher shortage. Listen. You have fewer people going into the profession. You have a hot labor market where teachers can get 20% more for the skills and knowledge they have teaching in non-teaching jobs. You have um, all of the pandemic stress and strain, particularly that um, kids are coming in with um, greater needs because of two years of disruption. And then you have all of the politics, the culture wars, the shaming and blaming, the banning of books, the censoring of curriculum. And because of the hot market, um, we have to have salaries where teachers, um, teachers, you know, salaries that are competitive. What do you make of that? Well, she's trying to blame uh, a, a shortage of teachers on uh, factors that don't they, they, they weigh into it, but they're not the reason for teacher shortages or the you know why teachers are leaving the profession. I mean, I think about you know great teachers who wanted to be in the classroom while their schools continued to be shut down for months on end. I think about the um, I, I think about the uh, you know the the teachers that I met with who for um, a year were you know the teacher of the year in their district or in their uh, state and had taken their victory lap and then a few months after getting back into their classroom, left the profession. I wanted to know why. And they said almost to a person, they were so frustrated with uh, the fact that they were told to kind of get back in their box after they came back from their year of acknowledgement and recognition, instead of being given more opportunities to help mentor others or prepare younger teachers for uh, the kind of experiences that they have had. And, it, it, you know, I think the teacher unions, the school unions have deprofessionalized what should be a highly honored and respected profession. And great teachers need to have the opportunity to be great and to help other teachers be great. The system doesn't allow for that because the system doesn't acknowledge merit. The system doesn't acknowledge that some teachers are really great and other teachers maybe should be finding a different profession because they aren't particularly effective. And uh, and I think um, the it, it all goes back to being, you know, having to conform within this one size fits all, uh, you know, public government run system that too many kids have been subjected to and are being ill served by. I realize teachers probably generally lean left, um, but not all of them. There's a healthy percentage that just, you know, if you look at the, the way the country's divided, will be Republican or will be conservative. 
And I have to imagine those teachers have had it with woke ideology being thrust upon them, upon their students. I mean, you look at what's happening in the military where we're having massive recruitment problems in various branches. And one of the reasons they cite is, you know, we're being lectured on our uh, white rage. We're being forced to read Ibram Kendi. You know, while all we want to do is risk our lives for our country, we don't really want to talk about skin color and things like that. And to to say, oh, well, that's definitely not happening amongst the teachers who are being forced to do exactly the same thing, I think, is to have your head in the sand. What do you think? No, absolutely. There are teachers who are leaving the profession because of being forced to teach curriculum they don't agree with. And um, and there, you know, there's just uh, a myriad of reasons. And again, I think the last two years really have laid bare these reasons and brought them into focus for everyone to see in ways that uh, it had been there for many years before. Um, you know, I, I felt like the uh, the lone, you know, voice calling the emperor has no clothes for many years, for 30 years before. But this has been laid bare in the last two years. And all of these uh, all of these issues, including, um, you know, celebrating and uh, and supporting effective teachers to be professional in their profession. These have been issues that have brought been brought well into the light and uh, an opportunity for us to deal with them in ways that are going to empower families, teachers and students like mm. never before. Well, we, we hope we hope so. But mm. all right, we have to go over student loans. We have to go over trans issues in schools, which is about to get regulated by the federal government. Uh, we've got to go over the changes to Title IX and sexual harassment cases on campus and school choice. Betsy DeVos is staying with us. Things have gone absolutely insane in our schools, as you know, and that was one blessing of the pandemic was we got to see it. You know, parents suddenly got thrust inside the classes that were open thanks to Zoom and were stunned to to see what was happening, to hear what was happening on race, on gender issues. And I was one of them. I, I was one of the parents who was just absolutely horrified at the way my school was behaving. It wasn't that I saw it via Zoom. I, it was just a slow boil over 2019, 20, and 21 for us. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, um, let me start it this way. I've told my audience before. Uh, we were in private schools in New York City. I have two boys and a girl. My boys were at an all-boys school, one of the best in the country. And they were not only asked on a weekly basis whether they were still sure that they were boys, all, the entire class, not just uh, you know any individual, just my, this is my son's third and fourth grade class. Are you still your boys? Sure, your boys. Uh, you might not be a boy. They, they got rid of the term son. Um, but when it came to race, post George Floyd, they circulated what they wanted to be mandatory reading for the faculty, saying in every classroom where white children learn, there is a future killer cop. And white mothers indoctrinate their children in black death. Um, okay, so how did that happen? How did how did that kind of instruction wind up in what was traditionally one of the more traditional schools in Manhattan? And why is it happening all over the country and what can we do to stop it? That's a loaded question for you. Well, I mean, it's these are great questions and ones that uh, parents are grappling with in ways that they had never envisioned a few years ago. Um, These are not new issues. 
these curriculums and uh, these tendencies have long been seeded in our traditional public education system, and they've spilled over into many private schools. And, and you can wind it back to the preparation that many educators have in the teachers' colleges where, um, it, you know, the very left-leaning um tendencies uh, take root and are taught explicitly and implicitly. And um, we have seen now, and, and again, I think it, it, importantly so, families have seen firsthand what, uh, you know, the kinds of things their children have been uh, subtly or not so subtly subjected to in years leading up to the pandemic. And, uh, and thankfully are now raising their voices and saying, uh, this is not for our children and we want alternatives and we demand alternatives. So this is an ideal time to put policies in place that actually do put parents back in control and uh, and give students the opportunity to have an education experience that's very different than the 175-year-old model of education that is failing too many kids and that is ridden with uh, ideology that is antithetical to so many families. I think about the internet and how you don't want your kids, mine are 12, 11, and 9. You don't let them go on the internet without some supervision, certainly not for long periods of time. You don't let them get sucked into Reddit rabbit holes. You know, like that's bad things happen. Even when they're playing their games on like an iPad, got to keep one eye out, out there because these predators do pop up in these forums. And once it, if there's a chat feature, you got to watch it like a hawk. Why? Because you don't want your child to be hurt or groomed, you know, or subjected to somebody who is dangerous for them. That's what's happening in schools. We're subjecting them to somebody who may be dangerous for them, who wants to create something out of them other than just a loving, good citizen. It, they want to create somebody who's a left wing activist. Yeah. And, and that's not their purview. That's not their remit. Right. I mean, it's it's infuriating, especially for parents who can't homeschool because they have two parents who work or they have a single mom in the family or for whom private school is not an option because they don't really have school choice in their area. Yeah, no, absolutely. But this is the silver lining in that 26 states in this last year expanded school choice, education, freedom programs, expanded or created ones in states where they didn't exist before. And they're more on the cusp of doing so. And, uh, and so education freedom policies. Where the money follows families. the student. Is that what you're talking where about? The where money the money follows, follows yes, where the money follows a student. I like to use the metaphor of the backpack where the kids you know, go to school every day with what they need for the day. Metaphorically, we attach the funds that are already being spent on that child to that backpack for the family to decide where they're going to buy their children's education. And um, I think about the school, the school that really sort of set me off on the whole journey of activism in education policy, the Potter's House School in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's a faith-based school in the heart of the city that serves that immediate vicinity mostly low, all low-income families, uh, students there, they have to raise 90% of the operating funds from benefactors every year because the families can't afford it themselves. But these kids are in an environment where they're thriving. There could be five more of those Potter's House schools today when families are empowered with those resources to make those choices and to choose a school like the Potter's House of one that matches their family values. 
And we're seeing progression toward this in lots of states, including, and importantly, Florida. That's the furthest along in the range of choices. And importantly, also Arizona that just passed a, a universal statewide education savings account program. So any family that wants to send their child to a different place for school can do so with 90% of the money that's spent on that child annually in Arizona. So around uh, $7,500 a child could be spent, uh, whether if they want to do a homeschool, um, you know, a hybrid homeschool, kind of a one-room schoolhouse thing, or they want to go to a school like a potter's house, they would have, they will have those options. And um, importantly, more options like that will be created as families are empowered with those, with the, the, the money following their children. Fun little aside here. So Betsy DeVos used to be Betsy Prince. She's from Michigan. Your family's from Michigan. Your dad was in auto parts, self-made, grew up in a humble house. But then things really started to take, to take off for him. And by the way, your, Eric, your brother's Eric Prince of Blackwater, which is also a fun fact about you. But I did not realize that one of the key to your dad's success was coming up with the lighted mirror on lighted the car visor. visor. It's brilliant. Yeah. You come from yes. a long line of brilliant people. That's amazing. Yes, yes. I, I recall fondly working in the uh, early stages of that factory. Um, first of all, when I was in junior high, uh, the first year the factory was in operation, we were making very few visors then because it was just getting off the ground. But uh, I inspected, packed, and shipped the visors that summer between, uh, my, I think, my seventh and eighth grade years. And um, and then went on and worked a third shift in the visor plant when it was up and running more, um, you know, robustly a couple of years later. And uh, and I had uh, I had the worst job in the plant since I was the boss's daughter. But I took the core of the visor off the injection molding machine and uh, put a rubber edge band around it a steel plate in the corner where it connected to the car and then closed it and riveted it in about 10 or 12 places. And uh, doing that third shift, I was amazed that I never actually riveted any fingers uh, through those <laughs> night hours from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. It was it was a but great like, experience. That's, a, that's good. Your parents made made they wanted you to have values. They wanted you to work hard. This is before. I mean, you're you're known now as a wealthy woman, but you it wasn't always thus. Your dad was self-made, wound up employing 5000 employees in the town like he was a businessman who gave back to the community. That's from what you come and you've been successful. Your brother's been successful. Your husband's successful. M my researcher tells me that you guys are the 88th wealthiest family uh, in America, but it's you, you come by it. Honestly, it's not bootlegging. It's something every woman needs. We all need the visor mirror at night when we're trying to put on our lip gloss. <laughs> it's not yeah, just that product. Right. I'm just saying right. it was interesting to me to see your background and see how hard you and your family worked for it. And um, you know, people like to take shots at you now if you have if you have money, but you you worked for years. No, no I, I was very blessed to grow up in a home where my parents taught us the value of hard work. They also taught us the value of generosity and giving back. And um, they modeled that so well. My mom's still alive. She's just about 90 and uh, continues to model that for me today. 
Um, and and uh, my husband's family the same way. Um, we we um, appreciate and value work of all kinds. And um, my my parents uh, again really set that tone for me early on, and I'm very grateful to them for that. Well, that's what first got you into education, as I understand it. You created a foundation. You started to make a lot of donations, and then you realized there's no amount of donations that's going to solve this problem. Like it, we have we need massive overhaul. It's government. That's the problem. And I heard you speaking to Moms for Liberty, a group I also love um, and have spoken to saying we need to abolish the Department of Education. Like what happens? I mean, I didn't realize it's only been around since Carter uh, until I read your book. I'm like, has it, been, has it been that recent that the D Department of Education was created? So what happens if we get rid of the Department of Education? Well, uh, we could still spend the same amount of money and attach it to families so they could make those decisions for their children. Uh, what uh, most people don't know is the federal Department of Education, the federal budget only supplies or provides eight or nine percent of all of the funding for education for K-12 education in the, our country. We spend about seven hundred fifty billion dollars every year for K-12 education. And uh, yet. Only eight or nine percent of that comes from the federal government, but all of the strings come from the federal government. So the monies that go into the de department for redistribution um, are churned around there. Uh, the, the philosophical bent of those career um, you know, bureaucrats that work there year in, year out, administration to administration are put on top of, you know, we we did everything we could in uh, our time there to redirect and reorient everything that we did around doing the right thing for students. That is not how the department generally operates. It really does operate with a very ideological bent and it that that is uh, exacerbated in an administration like the Biden administration where um, they tried to you know essentially kill any charter school expansion with yes. rules that would make it impossible to open new charter schools. They're trying to do it now with the Title IX rule that we put into place, which made dealing with matters of sexual misconduct on campuses one that we put a framework together that was fair and balanced, predictable, and put the uh, the accuser in um, in charge of how that would unfold, not putting them at the as 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 was the case before. Um, they sometimes became almost victim to the process, and due process was thrown out the window before we put the rule in place. They're trying to undo all of that, and yeah. I, I know you want to get into that more. So I'll just stop and just say this: uh, this administration doubles down on the ideology, and so doing away with and putting uh, the, the monies back into the hands of state and local government, if that's the, uh, the, the route, or better yet, into the hands of families for their children, for children with, uh, children with disabilities, um, having their, the, the monies that support that through IDEA going to the families to make those decisions would be a much better use and much more effective use of taxpayer dollars. The teachers unions and a lot of Democrats don't like putting the money behind the student because they don't want them to have the choice because I, I've heard you point out they don't think they'll win the competition. <laughs> they don't they, they don't think they'll be the one chosen. And so that doesn't help them in their power. Um, 
the charter school thing is interesting. Joe Biden came in and really, unlike Obama, like Republicans wanted vouchers uh, and they liked they liked uh, charter schools, too. And then Obama came in. He didn't like vouchers. He didn't like the money following the student. But he said, OK, charters could be all right. Um, not to the extent a Republican would, but he was more open minded to it. And Joe Biden has come in and said, no, no, charters are bad. And he's pushing through this massive pu- uh, agenda item that would say mm, you can have a charter if the local public school approves it and says it's good. I mean, I'm really short forming here, but it was so aggressive that even some top Democrats just came out. This just is this is happening right now and said, this is too much. You've gone too far because his proposed revision of how charter schools could get permission to operate and could exist is going to hurt black and brown people more than anybody. It's it, like the big charter school systems. They'll be fine. They'll be able to find a way to comply. But it's like the mom and pa operations who are in the inner city, who see a need, who have a bad public school, who say, I can do better. I'm going to try and help these kids. They can't. And so they're the ones who are going to get hurt. And so like so many of his policies, he's going to wind like defund the police for as in another one. It's going to come back and bite the very people he claims to care most about. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But we have to remember he is married to a member of the NEA and he has pledged his uh, support to the NEA and the teachers union school union agendas. And so this is not a surprise, but uh, people should wake up and acknowledge that this is what's happening there. There is an attack all across the board on any option and any alternative that isn't the government run top down, federally, you know, federally focused and, um, uh, you know, state executed system that so many kids are stuck in today and uh, were let down by in the last two years. So this is not a surprise, but parents support you know, their ability to have the choices and the options. They need to wake up and support those for elective office, both at the federal and the state level who support their ability to do that as well. They need to understand that the Democrat Party is totally bought and paid for by the school unions and all of their allies. It's happened in a vicious cycle for many, many years, and it's uh, become ever more evident just recently. I think people are waking up at least to the ideology in the school. I'm not sure everybody's got the charter system figured out and all of that. But for sure, we saw during covid the anger over these senseless mask mandates on children and the vaccine mandates, which they're now basically admitting were senseless because they're saying treat the vaccinated and those who have had covid the same. And virtually everybody's had covid now. So it's like, why are why were people fired? Why were kids expelled from schools for not getting them and so on? We're never getting apologies for that. Um, And so I do think they're paying attention. So one of the things that's gotten the attention is this so-called critical race theory in schools. And that's basically just a term that covers this, you know, race essentialism in schools, making everything about skin color. You know, you're you've got inherent characteristics because you're black or you've got them because you're white or because you're Hispanic and so on. And we see it every day. And just yesterday it was in the news. I'm sure you saw this, but there was a story out of Minneapolis public schools where the union there negotiated a deal. Apparently it was reached in March, but it's only making the headlines now saying that um, you're going to fire the white people first. Got to fire anybody. The white teachers go first. We don't care about merit. We don't care about seniority. All we care about is skin color because we don't have enough black teachers here. They say that um, 
the they want the teaching staff to better mirror the demographics of, demographics of the pupils. More than 60 percent of these students are of color. Only 16 percent of the tenured teachers and 27 percent of its probationary teachers are people of color. And so, as it always is with some on the far left, we get to this sort of quota system where just the, the raw numbers must go up, no matter how bad some of these teachers may or may not be or great. Some of these teachers may that doesn't that doesn't matter. Right. Well, uh, what they're proposing to do is simply wrong and it's uh, illegal. Um, and I'm sure that will be pursued. But it, it's also wrong for the kids that are supposed to be served. Kids need to have great teachers. And the only way they're going to have great teachers is when merit is recognized and acknowledged. And ultimately, the only way that you're going to have uh, ensure great teachers is when you have an open marketplace for education. The fact that we have had a government run uh, a, a monopoly that has uh, today yet, it, you know, there are more and more students leaving the system. But pre-pandemic, it was roughly 90 percent of the kids are in government assigned schools or government run schools that uh, that dynamic, that number, that percentage needs to change and more families need to be able to make a decision to leave those schools if they're not working for their children. Policies that support that are ultimately going to get at that and ultimately going to ensure that kids have great teachers no matter where they go to school because the families are going to be choosing them and they're going mm -hmm. to choose what's best for their kids because they care about and love their kids the best. Uh, not no matter what Terry McAuliffe, uh, the, the now losing governor of Virginia uh, of that race says um, one of the reasons people are seriously looking at homeschooling or alternatives to this public schooling and what's available to them. And, and as I point out, it's not just public schools. I mean, we've been in the private schools and it was horrific in New York City. What they're doing, the indoctrination is this weird, inappropriate. I, you know, I use the term grooming. It may or may not be that, but it's inappropriate sex talk and gender talk with children who are too young to handle that and and really shouldn't be discussing that with their teachers at all. And there was an example in the news today I wanted to run by you. Uh, this is out of Montgomery County, Maryland, not just outside of D.C., where they selected the book Rick by Alex Gino, G-I-N-O, as their anchor text, making it required reading for all incoming sixth, seventh and eighth grade students. Now, I have an, I have a rising sixth grader and I have a rising seventh grader. So I am interested in this story. Um, they think that you're going to love exploring your own identity through the eyes of Rick. Uh, this book will enable you to enjoy it, to explore your gender identity, self-expression, friendships, and learn the importance of standing up for one another. Okay. So let me just give me one minute on what this book is about. 12 year old Rick becomes convinced he is asexual about hearing about various sexual orientations at the rain rainbow spectrum after school club for LGBTQIAP plus rights. <laughs> after hearing the definition of asexuality, he searches the term on the computer, assures himself he is asexual because he's never had a crush on a girl or a boy, and he's never, quote, had that tingling in his pants grownups talk about when thinking about another person. This is absurd. Uh, many children of this age haven't even touched puberty and also have not had a tingling in their pants and don't want to discuss asexuality. They're little children. They're children. That's why they haven't had it. Rick's grandfather also reveals to him that he likes to cross dress and takes Rick to an event while he's dressed as a woman. So it's not enough that they, they got to make the kid's grandpa 
into a transvestite. I'm like, pop up. Why? Pop up. What are you doing? What are you doing? At the end of the book, the students put on a cabaret for money in which one student dresses and dances as a drag queen. Required reading, public mm-hmm. school. Montgomery County, Maryland, which is a very large area right outside of D.C. All right, let's pause. We'll take a quick break and we'll pick it up with Rick and his cross-dressing grandpa right, right after this. Don't go away. Okay, so the question is, how do we stop that kind of nonsense? Well, uh, parents need to speak up clearly for sure. And uh, as they have been doing, and it is amazing to me that this kind of uh, uh, curriculum keeps popping up all over the place, this hypersexualized, age in- inappropriate um, approach to discussing these subjects. Uh, whatever happened to actually helping kids learn to read and write and do their math and get prepared for the things that they need to know and need to learn in school, that's where they should be focused. And parents are rightfully uh, angered by this as as uh, these kinds of examples have been popping up all over the country and continue to. I I just saw a story today about a suburban district in uh, outside of Milwaukee, the same issue for earlier grades. Um, Parents have a right to know what's going on in their children's classrooms, and they have every right to speak up and and demand that these kinds of uh, materials are not taught uh, to their children, or they're given very clear options to uh, take their children out if and when they are taught. But let's go back to the appropriateness of some of these things. They are inappropriate. It is inappropriate. It is inappropriate in kindergarten through second grade to be having children, suggesting to children that boys might not be boys and girls might not be girls. They, those matters are for older children if and when uh, families think they're appropriate to be discussing. And uh, again, the focus in too many schools and in too many of these cases has been on uh, you know, matters that are not core to kids actually learning and uh, progressing in their uh, preparation for adulthood. Absolutely right. And you you talk about, um, you know, why don't we focus on reading and writing and so on? That story that we talked about out of... Um out of Minnesota, Minneapolis, where they're saying fire all the white teachers first, doesn't matter what kind of a teacher they are. You could be firing the best teacher in the district. Just make sure she's white. That's all they really care about. Um, That in Minnesota and Minneapolis public schools, the high school students there, only 39 percent are testing at or above the proficient level for reading. Twenty three percent, 23 percent testing at or above the proficient level for math. I mean, that is dreadful. But hey, let's focus on the race of the teachers. That's where our attention should go. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, our uh, our standings internationally vis-a-vis our competitors around the world before the pandemic were dismal. I mean, we were we were at uh, 18th in in um, in uh, science at 13th in reading and 37th in math. And uh, and yet we're we're uh, sitting and spending time talking about these issues that aren't preparing kids, that aren't teaching them how to learn, that aren't 
uh, you know, setting them on a path to success. We are focused on issues that should be left to families to discuss and certainly not discussed until an age appropriate time in a school setting. And so, uh, again, parents Parents had a firsthand, a front row seat to this, and uh, and they're letting their voices be heard, and uh, their voices are going to be heard at the ballot boxes, and they're going to be heard in school board races, and uh, they're going to be heard in many different dimensions of how kids uh, ultimately get their education. The, you mentioned the Wisconsin story. It's like crazy. You know how, remember when DeSantis passed this bill down in Florida, I'm sure you follow, followed that whole thing, where he said, you can't do this. Don't talk about gender identity or sexual identity with children in curriculum under third grade, like third grade and under. That's not an age appropriate level. It, and people said, well, you, you know, teachers aren't going to be able to say I went out with my partner. No, in curriculum. That's the rule under that law. But Wisconsin now offering this program, this is from a National Review article um, in this very affluent uh, Milwaukee suburb. I don't know how to pronounce it. Wauwatosa. Um They've brought in a private program developed by the National Director of Education for Planned Parenthood, which trains students in gender ideology starting in kindergarten. By yeah. second grade, a child's expected to know that not all boys have penises, not all girls have vaginas. In third grade, they're permitted the opportunity to understand the granular nature of the gender spectrum. You've got a Venn diagram offering boys on the left, girls on the right with, quote, anyone in the overlapping section. And it goes on to there's a bunch, but here's just a highlight from it. It says to the children, you might feel like you're a boy, even though you have body parts that some might tell you are girl parts. You might feel like you're a girl, even though you have body parts that some might tell you are boy parts. And you might feel like you're a boy or a girl like or or you're or but you may be a little bit of both. No matter how you feel, you are perfectly normal. And then they go on to talk about when how you get sexually transmitted diseases in high school. OK, that's fine. But they will only refer to a person with a cervix or a person with a penis. And they want you to discuss penetrative sex by being specific. Forgive me, Betsy, but saying penis vagina sex as opposed to just saying heterosexual sex, which is intended to make the curriculum inclusive of all, of all genders and gender identities. I'm so uncomfortable. I'm sure I've made you uncomfortable. Forgive me. But this is beyond. This is in the heartland. This is what's going on in schools more than just the ones we've cited and talked about. This is happening all over the country. And um, if if parents haven't awakened to this, they need to and, and they need to demand that their schools get back to focusing on teaching kids what they need to learn and know in order to be able to take over as leaders in future generations. I mean, this is this is. um, again, a representative of an ideology that has taken root for many decades now in uh, teacher school, ed- teacher education schools, and now uh, seeded into schools across the country. And um, I-, I think, again, many parents have awakened, many more have to, and um, we need to demand to get refocused on uh, kids learning and kids being kids. I mean, it's hard growing up as a kid today. And you know, I'm I'm thankful mine are all grown, but now I have grandchildren the same ages as your children. And uh the things that they have to deal with on a daily basis, um, not to mention uh, you know, subject matters like this being forced on them in schools, uh, it, it's tough enough to be a kid growing up today. Let's uh let's stay focused on 
preparing them to be actual contributors to society in the future and do that in ways that are going to work and unleash their their, their potential and their opportunities. You've got the Biden administration now weaponizing Title IX. I mean, they're weaponizing Title IX to which protects girls uh, in, at the college level from discrimination in sports and otherwise. And they are trying to use an expanded definition of harassment now uh, and just generally uh, under that title to include possibly misgendering a trans person who says that he's a girl, you know, a male to female who says I'm a woman and somebody uses a he pronoun. You could potentially get in trouble for that. We're seeing that already at some universities. Stanford's one of them. Um, but they are expanding. They're trying to expand Title IX <clears throat> to give trans girls all the rights that biological girls have, uh, which could be potentially problematic. And they've tabled sports for right now under their Title IX revisions. But that's coming where they're going to mandate equality for these trans girls in sports as well. What do you make of it? Well, I, I there's no way you can separate sports out from the rest of the implications of a Title IX rule because it's all one and the same. Yes. And so what they're proposing to do will essentially destroy women's sports. Um, I think about the, uh, you know, the swimmer at uh, University of Pennsylvania. I was a swimmer. I swam competitively for nine years. I was a good swimmer, not a great swimmer. I can't imagine I would have pursued swimming and going to those early morning cold swimming pool practices if I knew I was not only going to have to compete against good females, but against biological males as well. I think of the tens of thousands of young women who are working hard at their sports today and uh, face the prospect of having to deal with competing against biological males. It's not right. And it's it's absolutely wrong for the Biden administration to say they're going to separate out uh, women's sports from a Title IX rule, one that they're trying to decimate anyway uh, and do away with due process, basically turn over activist Title IX coordinators to be uh, a detective, a judge, a jury, and an executioner, all without sharing evidence against the accused, uh, the definition of unfair. Um, I just want to urge all of your viewers to speak into this rule. This is the public comment time right now. Uh, there's a, a site you can go to called protecttitle9.org. And please, speak into this and say, this is this is not where we need to go. Um, we need to protect the rule that we frankly put forward, which is a very fair and balanced approach to these issues that are tough, that are regrettable, but that happen. And we need to have a reliable and fair way to deal with them. The Biden administration will decimate them. ProtectTitle9.org. I think we only have until September 12th to get comments in, and then the comment period will be closed. So you put your money where your mouth is, folks. If you don't want this, just go on there, offer a quick comment. It's not going to take you all day. It's just going to it'll be a quick event. We, we got to get on there because they, they need to hear from people. Um, you are very right. I'm glad to hear you point that out about the fact that they say they're staving off the decision on gender is not true. Because I was actually just looking more closely at what the proposals are on the trans issue under Title IX, because there's the sexual harassment issue, too, which we'll get to. But um, the, on the trans issue, they say the new regulations are going to cover all forms of sex based harassment, which in their view would include harassment of a trans girl um, and any hostile environment against such people. 
uh, which would include denying or limiting a person's ability to participate in a school's activity. Now, you know that's going to be used to encompass sports and all sorts of things. So while they may say sports isn't in here as a lawyer, I could drive a truck through that. Um, So, yeah, you got to comment now. So let's get to the sexual harassment thing, because this is a cause near and dear to my heart. And I cheered you, cheered you openly. And then Arnie Duncan sent me some nasty notes (laughs) when you you created due process. Arnie Duncan was Obama's uh, secretary of education. Uh, You created you restored due process for men, young men accused on college campuses. Just can you just give us like a, a couple highlights? of what you did and what they are undoing right now on college campuses when it comes to people accused. And and as you point out, it hurts the accusers too. Well, the Obama administration basically stripped away due process rights from those who were accused. And you're right, most often men, but I actually heard from a young woman who had been accused and had been an accuser in one case and an accused in another. And uh, in both cases, she said the school got it wrong because of that framework. So what, what we did was restore a framework of rights that respects both the accuser and the accused and gives them the ability to uh, and gives the accused the ability to know what they're what what is being alleged to see the evidence to to hear the evidence and to question the accuser back not directly through third parties um so there you know the, there's not the uh, in your face back and forth but it it guarantees that uh the all of the facts have the opportunity to get out there and then decisions are made and it also segments um, from a single investigator model, which is what the Biden administration wants to go to, where an activist Title IX coordinator will be the detective, the judge, and the jury, and then the executioner, the sentencer in the situation um, where the accused will will not be privy to all of the information and not be able to argue back. Uh, it will take away due process rights which the courts have already opined on in many, many cases, must be a part of these cases. So I don't know how they think they're going to survive challenges to what they propose, because it's absolutely contrary to what the laws are and what the courts have said. But this is what they're trying to do. And um, it's unfair to everyone involved. And it ultimately hurts those who are bringing accusations because they have to go through it all again when it's done improperly. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is these boys get expelled by a kangaroo court. They get labeled a sex offender in a proceeding in which they've had no opportunity to see the evidence against them or to cross examine the woman accusing them. I'll just go with the the sex stereotype in this case. And in some cases, we've we've covered them here. There are text messages by the accuser saying, it was all me. I wanted it. And the guy has no idea this is even out there because he had no right to discovery. Then he gets labeled a sex offender. He gets kicked out of school, loses football scholarship, what have you. Then he gets a lawyer who appeals into federal court. And from what I read in your book, there's an over 40 percent reversal rate uh, by those federal courts of these kangaroo court rulings. So to your point, the accuser now has to go through the whole thing all over again. Yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't. It's not right. It's not fair. And to uh, 
double down on uh, this political agenda of the Biden administration, you know, piling on top of the Obama administration's agenda to weaponize Title IX. Uh, it, it is it is just unconscionable to me, and I just hope that uh, people will speak up. You know, I I, I just have to add here. Um, if I've only had one encounter with Joe Biden, and it was while he was before he decided to run for president again, uh, I was in a wheelchair. I was backstage after speaking. He came up to me. I'd never met him before in my life. He came up to me, put his hands on my shoulders and his forehead on my forehead for oh, several boy. seconds and had conversation with me. If if he had done that as a student on a college campus, under his proposed rule, I would have a Title IX sexual harassment allegation to uh, to you know levy against him because of his conduct. I heard from many students who had lesser encounters or lesser situations than what I had to encounter with him, and yet he wants this for college students, but will not acknowledge and and uh, and and uh, you know agree to probes into allegations of much more egregious conduct uh, on his part against mm -hmm. other women. I'm just using it as an example to say this uh, administration is so bent on trying to politicize and weaponize a law that was meant to protect women and to give them access to education, not to weaponize it to harm others. And, you know, this is a really, really bad uh, direction that they're taking with their proposed Title IX rule. And I hope people will speak up about it. Wait, can we just back up? You were in a wheelchair and he came over and he touched foreheads with you? Yes. Oh, my God. Why? Were Man, you just... Yeah. It was no yeah. disgusting. You don't want to touch foreheads with anybody. I don't I don't even touch foreheads with my husband. I mean, that's bizarre. And another example of his inappropriate boundary crossing. Exactly. What was it that he had to do? Was he saying, like, I have a terrible headache and you feel it? like what, what was he saying? How, how is this in any way OK to do in public? Good question. Um, he asked if I had any hardware as a result of my injury, and I had had uh, and broken my pelvis. Uh, then he told me that he had nine screws in his shoulder, but everybody thought they were in his head. And he was oh, doing boy. this while holding onto my shoulders with his forehead pressed to mine, oh, and, and you couldn't get away. Nowhere to go to or escape. I mean, it's like so you were basically harassed, the, the legal de definition of sexual harassment by Joe Biden uh, while in a wheelchair. That's that's our takeaway here. And as you point out, under his rules, he he'd get expelled from something for it. Um, it's crazy. Like what they're doing to young men is absolutely crazy and it's unfair. And these guys shouldn't have to worry. And women, as you point out, too, can get accused. I, I had a client who was harassed by a woman when I practice law. They shouldn't have well, to worry they're, about whether they're, they're going to get due process. Know based on who's in the White House. You know, that's just like, oh, I hope my son graduates high school when there's a Republican in office. This is nuts. Yeah, exactly. And I, I actually heard stories from uh, couples who had had a third party observe something that happened and file a Title IX, uh, you know, allegation against the guy 
when both of them said, well, no, you're wrong. There was Mm -hmm. nothing going on there. And then being told, well, you're just under such trauma that you don't really understand what happened to you. Well, this is just ludicrous. And again, it is uh, it, it is a weaponization of a rule that is meant to give all students the opportunity to pursue their education equally. Let's spend a minute on student debt. Uh, the Biden administration is hot on this. I mean, something that he was supposedly against, but now we've got midterms coming up. So you know how that works. He's considering there's we're, they're saying we're going to get a decision decision on this by the end of August, considering using executive action to provide ten thousand dollars of debt relief per borrower. Many progressives want it to be closer to fifty thousand. He's weighing it um, for those who make one hundred one hundred and twenty five thousand as an individual up to two hundred fifty thousand for families. So those people do not need debt forgiveness. They are very well off by American standards, but that's who's going to get it under this potential proposal. Uh, They also are looking in how they could automate loan forgiveness without requiring borrowers to even fill out an application form. Just one swoop of the magic wand. They're looking at ways to cancel debt for borrowers who are in default. Okay, so just anybody who didn't pay, they get to get their loans paid off which is, of course, an incentive not to pay them while they're under consideration um, versus those suckers like me who actually paid my loans off uh, by working hard. Uh, They're talking about maybe roughly eight million borrowers who are in default right now who could potentially benefit from this. Um, All of this, Betsy, seems like it seems drastically unfair to people who actually paid their bills and doesn't seem like we can afford it. But it seems like a political pitch that they feel will help them in advance of November. What do you think it's about and and do you think it's a good idea? Well, first of all, uh, it's illegal for the president to just wipe away and forgive a bunch of student debt. We we believe there's no basis in law to do that. Secondly, it's patently unfair. Two out of three Americans did not go to college and take out student loans to do so, Uh, not to mention the fact that people like you have faithfully paid on student loans and have done so um, and paid them off or the veterans that have served our country and earned their tuition as a result Um, to just say we're going to wipe away a bunch of student debt is uh, patently unfair for all of those. It's unwise. It is a wrongheaded policy, and um, and I, I, you know, you can see the the um, influence that uh, Elizabeth Warren has had is having in this administration with all of her folks that have uh, invaded the uh, the student loan portfolio and the student, you know, uh, federal student aid infrastructure, and are working on every way possible to try to wipe away and forgive student loans, student debt, um, based on whatever they can find to try to do it with. But it's it's wrong because it is it is uh, not fair to all of those who are ultimately going to have to foot the bill to do this. And um, and, you know, I have said many times that Congress really needs to get a grip on this and uh, step back and reassess the whole process of student lending, uh, which they you know, took in inside the federal government, the Democrats did as part of Obamacare, um, ostensibly to pay for Obamacare. And now uh, we have a loan portfolio that is bleeding debt and all of these promises being made to students, most of whom um, it, it is actually a reverse Robin Hood 
approach, uh, paying off the, the loans of high income earners at the expense of those who have not taken yeah. out loans or who but, yes. uh, you know, that, that's don't exactly have the ability to pay. I think of the trucker who said, I could go to college and take out a bunch of debt, but I'm worried about my ability to pay it and I don't want to not pay my debts. And so he doesn't do it. And now he's got to pay for the debt of this couple making $250,000. It's BS. All right, we got one minute left and I got to get to this story. You mentioned Elizabeth Warren. Some of the stories in here about your experiences on Capitol Hill are amazing. Uh, and one of them is with Bernie Sanders. And can you please leave us on a laugh with what you noticed when you went into Bernie Sanders Senate office? <laughs> Uh, well, my 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 meeting with him was great, but my takeaway was the office was lot full of lots of different kinds of plaid, and it smelled like a lot of mothballs. <laughs> I love the color, you know, like that's something you don't really get from Bernie Sanders uh, when you see him from a distance and all the memes and so on. Plaid and mothballs. It really brings the audience there. Look, you touch on everything in this book, and I appreciate it. And I feel like we, there's just so much. You've learned so much from your various roles in education. You're a wealth of information. Let me ask you this parting question. Whoever gets in there next time around, if it's a Republican as a president, would you be willing to serve again? Um, I've been willing to do whatever it takes to advance opportunities for kids. And if that would mean to serve in some way, I would do that. Great. Good. I'm glad to hear it because we need more people like you who are unafraid. And frankly, being independently wealthy is a plus in this situation where it's like they can throw their you know little arrows and so on, but you'll be just fine. You're doing what you believe is right for the country. Betsy DeVos, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Megan. It's been great to be with you. So Betsy DeVos was sexually harassed by Joe Biden. That's what we learned, among many other things on today's show. Unbelievable. Think about it. I know we're laughing. Think about yourself in a wheelchair, unable to move, and having this guy come over, lean down, put his hands on your shoulders, and put his forehead against yours, his sweaty forehead, breathing on you right in your face. I mean, come on. The poor woman. Betsy DeVos has been through a lot. She would have preferred the Elizabeth Warren treatment. <laughs> Don't touch me. Walk the other way. One of the many things we can talk about over with our friends from the Ruthless Podcast who are coming back on tomorrow. Don't miss that. Download the show. In the meantime, the Megan Kelly Show on Apple, Pandora, Spotify, and Stitcher. Go to youtube.com slash Megan Kelly and hit subscribe so that you can watch us if you prefer. In the meantime, thanks for being with us and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. <laughs>